Let's turn this morning in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll commence reading at verse 1, reading of course from the authorised version. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day in this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his work. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today after so long a time, as it is said, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also have ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It reads as follows, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And my subject today, as we open up this Reformation 500 week, is the authority of Scripture alone. Now, throughout the Bible... There are some 160 references to the word 
of God. And I want you to think of the text, Hebrews 4 and 12, the word of God is. Now, this is just one text out of those 167. I'm well aware I've preached in Hebrews 4 verse 12 uh, before, and I'm not going to preach an exposition primarily of this word. I'm using this as a springboard, in a sense, to launch the subject, the authority of Scripture alone. This text tells us that the Word of God is quick. What does that mean? It means it's alive. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, made a reference to the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. God's Word is a living Word. It's also powerful. It comes with power on the hearts and minds of men and women who hear it. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I want you to think of the testimony of the Apostle Paul to the peace people in Thessalonica when he had come preaching the gospel and individuals were saved and many lives were changed and transformed. The Apostle Paul said this to them. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because... When ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In other words, they didn't adopt the mindset, well, the apostle Paul has spoken to us. When they heard the word of God, the truth, they adopted the mindset God has spoken. Also in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it teaches us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Paul described it in Ephesians 6 and 17 as the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I want to tell you this morning, when you get a preacher that's gripped by the word of God, God in grace can use that individual man to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. And this is exactly what happened in the Reformation time. After that God had saved young Martin Luther, Martin Luther was gripped by the word of God in his heart in his conscience, and, and in his very soul. In other words, he was gripped with the authority of the scriptures of alone. And God used him to bring down the strength of the people anti-Christian system in his day. And the Protestant Reformation, as we're going to celebrate it, is a reformation of and by the word of God. It was by the word of God and the preaching of that word that the whole of Europe was awakened to see a need for a personal relationship with God by faith. Now, of course, I believe there's a great need to rediscover and re-emphasize in our day the authority of the scriptures alone. This as I've said, was the great foundation stone of the evangelical Protestant Reformed Church from its inception. It was Bishop Chillingworth that said, the Bible alone is the religion of the Protestant Church. You see, I said this this morning to the Bible class again, the, the Church of Rome will talk about Scripture, they talk about grace, they talk about faith, and Christ, they'll even talk about the glory of God. But they'll not talk about Scripture alone. 
They'll not talk about the authority of Scripture alone. They'll certainly not talk about Christ alone or grace alone or, or faith alone or the glory of God alone. That, that is, they'll not talk about them exclusively. That The Church of Rome cannot. That The Church of Rome will not use that word alone. And we could ask whether it's the cardinals or, or an individual um, theologian within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, what is the basis for your authority? Upon what do you base your doctrine, your teaching, your practices, your, your dogma? And the Church of Rome, of course, cannot say that it's based on the authority of Scripture alone. The Church of Rome bases its doctrines and dogmas on the authority of Scripture, but also the authority of the Pope, the authority of church councils, the authority of the cardinals, the authority of tradition. And Martin Luther in his day as a monk in the Roman Catholic system, he rejected all that because he had been born again by the Spirit of God and the Word of God was alive in his heart. The Word of God had a powerful effect on his heart and mind and the Word of God was like a sharp two-edged sword, not only in his own life but in his hand. And because of this overriding conviction of the authority of Scripture alone, Martin Luther sought about dismantling the very edifice or the foundation upon which the, the papacy stood. Now this is a vast subject this morning. And I've only got about 20 or 25 minutes. So I'm really just scratching the surface. I'm really just wetting your appetite. So we're thinking this morning, as we open this Reformation 500 week, truth for our times. And here's a truth for our times that needs to be rediscovered, young people, and re-emphasized, and it's this. The authority of the Bible alone. Now, I have four points. Firstly, I want you to see the essence of the authority of Scripture alone. Well, what do we mean? When I stand in this pulpit and say the Protestant church, the Free Presbyterian church, as one of our foundation stones, stands for the authority of the Scriptures alone. Lovely little phrase, Mr. McLaughlin. But what does that mean? Well, it means this, that the Bible and only the Bible, the Bible alone can mold and shape what you think. The Bible alone dictates what you're to believe about God and yourself and sin and the world. And the Bible alone governs your life and mine as to how we live it out as human beings. You see, if we understand the Bible has the right as the word of the living God, a word that's alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, the Bible has the right to command us to submit to certain things about belief and behavior. The Bible has the right to order and to enforce God's will as far as our lives are concerned. It's like us handing ourselves over, lock, stock and borrow, to the Bible and accepting that the Bible has the right to govern what I believe and the Bible has the right to govern how I behave for time and eternity. The Bible 
has a unique, inherent, gracious, all-powerful authority over our lives. Now, they will ask the question, why does a man or woman live in a certain way? That individual's a born-again Christian. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They've got a testimony to his saving and keeping power. Why do they live in a certain way? Why do they not come out and quit murder? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. You see, they're being governed and molded and shaped by the Bible. Why don't they go out and steal? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Why do they not commit adultery? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Why do they not bear false witness? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Why go to church on the Lord's day? Here's the answer. Because the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Doesn't the Bible say, neglect not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You see, in Paul's day, in the book of Hebrews, there were some decided, it's the Lord's day morning. Do you know what? I can't be bothered going to the assembly. I can't be bothered going to worship God. I take myself off. I go to the shops. I go to the bowling green. I go to the cinema. I, I, I go and do something else. Something that I want to do. And you see, that's being self-centered. That, that, that's not doing it to please God, to glorify him. If this book is a life, and this book is powerful. And this book is sharper than a two-edged sword. So that it cuts and quicks and convinces us. Then we submit to its authority. Why do we preach you must be born again? Because the Bible says, Marvel not that I say unto thee you must be born again. <coughs> Why do we preach that Christ is the only saviour of God's elect. Here's the answer. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I could go on this morning. We need to learn, and I'm speaking now of us as a congregation, myself included, to judge ourselves, to judge our lives by the word of God. You see, God has given us the Bible as the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It's our yardstick to measure every doctrine by. It's our yardstick to measure every claim by. It's our yardstick to measure every movement by. It's the yardstick to measure every preacher and every church by. And I want to say this morning, we dare not, we cannot adopt any other standard. There's only one standard, and that's the touchstone of Scripture. What saith the Scriptures? I was reading in my daily reading in Eagle's Wings just the other day, I think it was the 3rd of October, Isaiah 8 and 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. You see, there's the important young people of our Bible. And this is the essence of what we mean by the authority of Scripture alone. Dr. Kern said in that 
particular reading that morning. It was from his pen. We will not add tradition to scripture because we'll end up trimming the word to accommodate our tradition. We will not add science to scripture because we will go on to deny the word of God and accommodate some passing scientific theory. We will not add church counsel to scripture for counsels of erred and do err. They will end up twisting God's truth to suit our thinking or our shibboleths. We will not add experience to scripture because we'll end up making the Bible agree with our experience and defy all sound principles of interpretation. No, friend. The Bible and the Bible alone must be the only standard of our belief and behaviour. And anyone, let him be Pope or priest or, or minister of the gospel, let anyone who teaches anything else, that man or woman has no light in them. They're an agent of darkness. And of course, Bible rejectors are darkened fools. We have learned men in universities. We have great intellectual scholars, men whose shoes I wouldn't be fit to tie or even untie. And yet those very individuals sit and pontificate on the Bible. And they sit in judgment of the scriptures. And they don't allow themselves to be judged by the book. And that mindset has affected many churches. And infiltrated many pulpits. And undermined the faith of thousands. And frightened many good believers. And I want to say this morning that it's not scholarship. But it's sin that leads men to deny the Bible. And that's important. Augustine said, we must surrender ourselves to the authority of Holy Scripture. For it can neither mislead nor be misled. Didn't the Lord Jesus say, John 10, 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. And here's the Lord Jesus affirming the absolute authority of the scriptures alone. The Lord Jesus is establishing no matter what man or what professor or what scholar or what preacher or, or theologian chooses to argue with the Bible. Let him bring his rational thoughts. Let him bring his, 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 uh, his um, mind on any subject. He can pontificate on the subject. But the word of God is the final authority. And what God has decreed, what God has written in the scriptures, cannot be disregarded, it cannot be changed, it cannot be worn out, it cannot be sustained. In fact, the Bible tells us God has magnified his word even above his glorious name. And holy and reverent is his name. Now that's the first thought. That's what it means. The second is this. The evidence of the authority of scripture alone. You see the Bible claims this authority for itself. Of course scripture has a very very unique origin. Turn over there to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. It says there. 2 Timothy 3 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness. Now, where did the Bible come from? Who invented the Bible? Who made the Bible? Here's the answer. Here's the internal testimony, young people. The Apostle Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we'll stop there. Notice it's not every Scripture. You see, some modern versions have every Scripture given by inspiration. But it's not that. It's all Scripture. There's no doubt here. All refers to the Old Testament. All the 39 books from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Malachi is given by inspiration. And the word inspiration is theoneustos. It's a compound word. It's only used once in the whole of the New Testament. It is used once in the Old Testament. And that's from Job 32 verse 8. And it's the very same meaning. That this compound word, theo, means God. Neustos means breath. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is the product of God. All scripture is from God. And, and the, the, there's, a, there's a special thought here. There's a special meaning here. And what it means is this. It originated from God himself. God breathed it out. God breathed the words. God spoke. The, the words flowed from God. We cannot in any sense separate God from his word. The scripture comes from him. The scripture shows and demonstrates its unique authority. Why? Because it's the word of God. It's a God-breathed book. And there's loads of verses in the Bible that equates God with his word and the word with God. Romans 9, 17 comes to mind. The scripture saith unto Pharaoh, that's a quotation from Exodus 9 and verse 16, where in Exodus 9 and 16 we read, God spoke unto Pharaoh. And do you see the difference? There's an equation there between what God says and what the Scripture says. God is equated with the Scriptures. And when God speaks, the Scripture speaks. And, and, and when, when the Scriptures speak, God is speaking. The, the two are one. First Peter 4 and 11 talks about the oracles of God. See, Scripture has a very unique origin, young people. If you turn over there to another reference in Peter, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in the verse 21. And we read there these words. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, the pen men were inspired. The words were inspired. God told the men what to write. God guided by giving them every word. They were not putting down their own words or their own thoughts. And they were not free to interpret God's words. They were not adding their own concepts. They were not saying, well, well I think God meant this. No, no, that's dynamic equivalence. And, and we reject that. that. That means thought for thought. We believe in exact equivalence. 
word for word. We believe in plenary and verbal inspiration. And you know what? This word that God breathed out is also divinely preserved until this very day. See, let me make it clear. The Bible's not a fallible book. It's not a book that contains errors. The Bible as an infallible, inerrant book. And because it's of its origin that's unique, therefore it's authoritative. And we need to rediscover and regrasp this high view of Scripture. Not only has it unique origin, but it has a unique object. Men must submit their heart, their mind and will to what God says. If we adopt when we read the scriptures and study it and hear it, God has spoken or God is speaking. Remember he said in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, To this man will I look to him that is poor and who is of a contrite spirit and who trembleth at my word. You see, the, the, the man who is truly poor in spirit and who has got a broken heart before God, recognizing his sinfulness and God's holiness, he will tremble because he'll say and he'll realize, he'll be, have this conviction, God is speaking to me out of the book. This was something that historic Christianity believed right up until the 18th century. And then after the 18th century came what we call higher criticism or the critical examination of the scholar's fallible men on an infallible book. And it was a French scholar by the name of Richard Simon or Simon in 1712. He was actually a Roman Catholic and he became the father of biblical criticism. And this was the age of enlightenment. And he, his mindset was, as he approached the Bible, the Bible should just be judged like any other book. But I want to tell you it's not. And Richard Simon was wrong because it's God's book. It's not a human book. It's not a fallible book. It's God's book. And if you think of the word Bible, the acrostic on it, be instructed before leaving earth. By God's book, we learn about God. By God's book, we learn about sin. By God's book, we learn about our soul, about salvation. We learn about God providing a saviour for us called Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this morning. Suppose I was worked in a factory and you worked in the factory and I'm just an ordinary worker and you're just an ordinary worker and I come dandering down to your machine and I say to you, here boy, you're fired. Way home. Pack your stuff. You, you would laugh. You would look at me. Or suppose I said to you, here, I have news for you. I'm giving you a raise. You would say, I pulled the other one. There's bells on it. Do you know why? It would have no impact on you. Because I'm just an ordinary worker. I'm just like yourself. I have no right, nor authority, nor power. To say any of those things to you. Neither you're fired or you're getting a rise or you're getting promotion or anything like that. That would not impact you. 
That would just be my mere silly comment to you. No authority. But suppose I was the boss. I owned the factory. I employed every one of you as workers. And then I'd come on down to where you were and said, there's your P45, you're fired. Or I'm giving you a rise. Well, you see, you would accept that. You would take that on board because that would be the boss speaking. And you see, it's in that level I want you to think about the authority of the Bible. There's no other authority. There's no other book that's going to teach us about heaven and hell. Nor, nor teach us about creation or about God or about Jesus Christ. You see, it's not my word as a preacher. It's God's word. In all 66 books of the um, whole Bible, 40 different authors, men from different walks of life and background, kings to fishermen, spanning 1,500 years. And yet, in the book, there's a wonderful unity of design. God is superintendent at all. And, and their one design is to highlight the whole gambit of God's plan of salvation from start to finish. How paradise that was lost in Eden can be, can be regained. So, so there's the evidence. The internal testament. And we could turn to many scriptures. I want you to think very quickly and thirdly the extent of the authority of the scriptures alone. To what extent does the Bible authority stretch? I already spoke about its own intrinsic unique authority. I've told you we can't separate God and his word. The God of the word and the word of God is, is one and the same. They've got the same quality of holiness and perfection and impeccability and integrity and wisdom and truth about it. Did you know that a preacher from England by the name of the Reverend John Thackway had said this. We ought to almost worship the Bible as we worship God. And he was saying it reverently. We ought to trust our Bible as we trust God. And he said that at the 2005 at Trinitarian Bible Society conference in Brooklyn Reformed Church. And he said that for this reason. I quote it for this reason. Because it's so comprehensive. It's so extensive. It affects every part. Now let me be quick this morning. It affects the whole of society. If you turn over there to the book of Haggai. If I can pick it up quickly. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 3. Haggai the prophet was to say... <laughs> Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying. Now, now notice who he was to speak to. Three groups of people. Did you know that Haggai had 46 verses? You could read it in a few minutes, maybe five. But it was no fewer than 26 of those references out of 167 in Haggai alone, there's 26 references to the word of the Lord or the word of God came. And that's the whole theme of the book. The word of the living God through the lips of the messenger. Haggai was God's messenger with God's word. And here he is in Haggai 2, verses 1 to 2, and he's addressed three groups of people. Speak now to Zerubbabel. That's the prince, the son of Shealtiel. The prince must submit to the authority of scripture. The, the unquestionable authority of scripture for the civic leaders. 
prince's authority to rule, to govern, is subjected by the authority of the word of God. There's a greater authority than the prince. The word of God. God speaks to the prince. Remember Queen Victoria said, asked the secret of England's greatness. She pointed to the open Bible. See, she lived under the authority of the scriptures. Zerubbabel, uh, Haggai was also told not only to speak to Zerubbabel, but to speak to Joshua, the high priest. He's identified. There's the spiritual ruler. You see, the church didn't produce the Bible. The Bible's not a product of the church. God gave the Bible to the church as a gift. And the church must submit and bow the knee to the Bible as the word of God. And notice also in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 3, there's the mention of the people. 50,000 of them. To whom the word of the Lord came. Isn't there a great crisis today in society? Isn't there a great spirit of discontentment? Why? There's this mindset abroad, who is the Lord that I should obey him? There's a refusal to submit to God and to the word of God. And I want to affirm this morning the binding authority of God's word over all the world. No exceptions. And that's true universally. It's true for our congregation. It's true for our denomination. Martin Luther at the Diet of the Worms quoted to the um, prince on the throne as he finished his, his great declaration. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do none other. So help me God. Amen. You see, he submitted to the authority of the book. And there's no exceptions. We, we submit to that authority in equal parts. Because the Bible doesn't merely contain the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. I, I want you to think also not only to the whole of society, but about the whole of history. You see, it's all true. You know the story of Adam and Eve, boys and girls, in the Bible, in the garden, standing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, being tempted by the serpent, See, that's all true historically. I have no problem with the historicity of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. It, to me, it, it's actual history. Didn't the Lord Jesus talk about Adam and Eve as actual characters? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? No, he wasn't. You see, I dare not bring my opinions. I dare not say, I think. Of course, I also believe in the story of Noah and the ark. I believe in the story of Daniel in the Den of Lions. I believe in historicity of Abraham, Moses, Jacob. The history of the children of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Why? Because this is the extent to which God's authority reaches. Think of the person of the Lord Jesus. Who was he? Was he just a good man, a great man, a gracious man, a wonderful man, a lovely moral teacher? There's many believe that. Where did they get that from? We get it from the Bible. Oh, that's great. Show us. Show they show us. But what about this verse that says, he's the word of God. He's the son of God. And of course, they reject that. But Jesus wasn't just a great man, a good man, a gracious man. He was the God man. He was God incarnate. He, he said he was. Think about the gospel. He who said, I have a message from God for you. The gospel is a word from God. It's, it's God's message. It's not the church's message. It's not my message. It's a message that's God's given. The extent, of course, stretches to the whole of its geography. 
There's a lot of talk today about Bible and science and how you reconcile the two. And I want to say this. If geology or science, so-called, conflicts with the Bible, then the Bible must stand. I believe God. I would argue for a young earth. I would argue against evolution in any form, even theistic evolution. The whole of its integrity. What about errors in the Bible? We hear this often. Well, there are none. And of course, people point to dates and point to certain discrepancies of names and things that appear to contradict and contrast one with another. And we have to say, well, well, these are only apparent. Matthew Poole has a brilliant article in his commentary on the objections to certain things about dates and discrepancies in the Bible. And then he supplies the answer. Let's face the objection. And, and then let's give the answer. Yes, there's things hard to understand. But these so-called errors, they're not real. They're only imagined. They're only supposed. Why? Because people don't want to submit to the authority of Scripture. What about the whole of its morality? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. People want to hear the Sermon on the Mount. They talk about the golden rule and they think it's a lovely emphasis. And then they reject most of the Old Testament because they said it's, it's, it's primeval, it's, it's barbaric stuff. They almost purport, well, there's two different gods. There's a heathen God and, and a Christian God. Well, that's rubbish. That's a lie. There's one God in the whole of history. A God of wrath and holiness who hates sin. And these dealings with sin in the Old Testament is all to demonstrate about his hatred for sin and sin that must be dealt with and put away. The Bible tells us that God is holy and perfect in all his ways. But he's also revealed as a God of love. As a God of grace. Not two gods. It's the same God. There's no difference. We could talk this morning about the rules of marriage and relationship. Spurgeon said, and I quote him as the Prince of Baptist preachers. He says, my brethren, when learned men claim to make a new discovery that contradicts the Bible, don't be alarmed. Don't imagine he's made a real discovery. Don't think he's a great man. He's nothing but an educated fool, a self-conceited fool. You see, the Bible is the only book that reveals to us all these particular subjects. Creation, morality, sin, God, Jesus Christ. That's the extent of its authority. One final thing and I must close. The experience of the authority of Scripture alone. See, the Lord Jesus said, and I finish with this, if you look with me at John chapter 12, and he made a tremendous statement there in John 12, and it's in verse 48, John 12, and he said this, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Being judged by the book. Remember in Isaiah 62, 66 verse 2, To this man will I look to him that is poor, and is contrite in spirit, and who trembleth at my word. Here's the scepter by which God rules his church. Here's the scepter by which he rules the lives of the Christian. 
The Bible's not to be toyed with. It's not to be tampered with. It's not to be trifled with. Don't we see so little trembling today? Have we forgotten that we're going to be judged by the book that God has given us, that we have in our hands, that's in our homes? Why is evangelism so hard today? Why is things so difficult when it comes to the work of God? Is it not because there's an absence of trembling at the word of God? You see, if God says it, I must do it. It's as if God has made himself visible to us and that God speaks to us. Remember what Isaiah said, and I finish with this. This affects our minds. This affects our hearts. This affects our lives. This affects our liberty. This affects when we study the scriptures and believe that God is speaking to us out of the book, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. And that's why we can't have a church where anything goes. Because we're subject to the authority of the scriptures. And it's not a pick and mix. We're subject to all of the word of God in its entirety. And the experience of the scriptures centers on this. God judges me by the book. I pray this morning, and whet at your appetite in 35 minutes or so, and we pray that God will deepen us in our thought about the scriptures today, and God will help us to be children of the book.